Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and I have two guests with me today. They happen to be married. Um, they're emeritus professors from the mathematics department at Illinois State University. And with me is Nerida Ellerton and Mackenzie Clements. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Nerida and Mackenzie are also called Ken. So Nerida and Ken have been around the world uh, working in quite a few different countries. They've done work on the history of school mathematics. So I'm really curious about your perspective. As you now kind of transition into retirement, we can look back at some of the work you've done and your thoughts about the field. So I want to go back to when you really started in mathematics education and you did your doctoral work. Um, What were your experiences like as you were getting that PhD uh, related to mathematics education? We could not enroll in Australia or in New Zealand in our PhD programs until we had completed all of the required graduate research courses. Our PhDs consisted entirely of actual research and no coursework because that had already been completed. So for myself, I did an honours degree in physical chemistry at the University of Adelaide and the fourth year of that degree required me to gather much laboratory data complete all of the coursework as part of that and to prepare a 150-page thesis which was then examined externally and was the basis of a, a publication for a major research journal. But then I was able to proceed to my PhD in physical chemistry in which I explored both experimentally and theoretically how small molecules, which were mutagens and carcinogens, interacted with DNA potentially altering its structure. Now that sounds very far from mathematics education, but I'll get to that. Two more publications in that um, area emanated from my work, and um, then subsequently I was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship in physical chemistry at University of California at Berkeley, and then later one at Oregon State University. So all of that preceded my um, mathematics education work. My second PhD was completed within the Department of Mathematics at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. My chief supervisor was a mathematician and my, again, my externally examined uh, thesis was over 350 pages. But the research was a major one which required me to test whole school populations. That was the design of the study involving about 15,000 school students in all, about half in New Zealand and the other half in Adelaide, South Australia. My study was aimed at testing the validity of extending Piaget stages of learning with respect to mathematics. Whereas my PhD involved a different pathway from narratives. At the University of Melbourne, I took postgraduate courses covering measurement in education, philosophy of education, sociology of education, and history of Australian education. Before doing those courses, I had done a, a major, I'd had majors in pure mathematics, applied mathematics, and a minor in history. My master's thesis comprised a 350-page externally examined study on mathematics in professional colleges in Victoria between 1880 and 1920. I did all that before being admitted to PhD. My PhD was solely by research. It culminated in a thousand page, three volume history of school mathematics in Australia. 
While gathering data for the research, I worked in archives attached to the universities of Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney and Tasmania, and also in archives in many schools. I also recorded interviews with many education old-timers. The doctoral dissertation was called a thesis, was examined by two external authorities. One was based in England, the other in Western Australia. My supervisor at the University of Melbourne was a highly regarded education historian, not a mathematics educator, who, because he was a journal editor, was able to teach me to write in a scholarly manner. I was a working class boy and uh, I needed to be taught to write in a scholarly manner. Uh, four publications based on chapters in my PhD were published. Hmm. Yeah, already quite the you know range of experiences even before you got you know into the field, so to speak, at the doctoral level. Um, and we'll get into more of how those experiences have informed your work. But I also want to dig into a little bit of your specific research in mathematics education topics. So, um, Nerida, you did some research on problem posing. And I was wondering when you first became interested in that area of problem posing. And then maybe if you want to share some of the key ideas that you developed as you were doing that research. Well, when I was preparing my honours physical chemistry and then subsequently the PhD in that area, I was aware that the whole of the time I was posing questions and problems and these were needing to be modified as I gathered data. So the data informed the questions. It, it's a different view from science from what popular is popularly around. And this continued to be the case right through my doctoral and postdoctoral research. And I be became convinced that problem posing and problem solving were intimately connected. Um, so once I got into mathematics education research, and I was gathering data from students, not only about the problems that they could solve, but I realized that if I could probe their ability and their adeptness in posing problems, this helped me establish what the limits of their understanding were, because you can't probe, you can't pose a problem unless you are have an understanding of the mathematics, or at least you can't pose a sensible problem without that. So one of the questions I asked of all the students in that major study was this, pose a problem which you think would be difficult for a friend of yours to solve, and then please provide the answer to that problem. Requiring them to provide a solution, they had to keep the problem within the scope of what they could do that by saying it was difficult, they, it was meant to extend them to their limits. So uh, that was one instrument. And then another instrument that I developed for that research was a projective instrument for which participating students were asked to write a letter to a friend who had missed mathematics classes and to explain what had happened in that class. As part of this letter, students were asked to pose some problems related to the content that they had described and to show the solution, how to do it. And that instrument proved to be a very powerful tool which has um, much greater potential to reveal a depth of students' understanding about the mathematics they have been studying than simply asking them, well, what do you understand? Yeah, and that seems interesting to me too, where you can get insights into their understanding 
but you can also get some insights into what they think mathematics is about. They think, you know, this is the typical sort of problems that we're expected to solve, or you can maybe get some evidence of the full scope of what they think, you know, mathematics occupies. So, and in my experience, a lot of times that's fairly narrow. Like they really just think there's a very narrow set of math problems that we're supposed to do in school when really there's a wide variety of problems that could be very creative and very outside the box. Yeah, that's right. And those experiences challenged me to consider the dimensions and the significance of problem posing in mathematics. And indeed, being able to pose problems is, and I believe must be, more important than solving of someone else's problems. So in both my teaching and my research from the 1990s on, there was usually a problem-posing component. Um, in my teaching, I tried to model ways of integrating problem-posing tasks into the curriculum and setting tasks for the students which involved posing problems as a natural part of what they themselves might do either as a future teacher or for practising teachers to reflect on their current practice. Mm-hmm. So... In the early 1990s, I was at Edith Cowan University in Perth, and I supervised what I believe was a groundbreaking doctoral research study that was conducted by Elena Stoyanova. And she took up that challenge and probed how one might categorise different types of problem posing. And that research is still being picked up and has become a very basic reference in the literature. And then I guess culminating, you asked about um, some of the observations and so on. Between 2008 and 2015, when I worked with Mahela Singer and Jin Fukai, and we prepared together a special issue of Educational Studies and Mathematics on problem posing. And that brought together a number of well-regarded researchers and authors who worked in that area. And that sprang from a major meeting at PME where there was a special interest group and a very large meeting and a lot of enthusiasm to bring a publication out on this area. And then, of course, we we worked on editing um, a collection that was published by Springer in 2015 called Mathematical Problem Posing from Research to Effective Practice. Um, and I, I think, finally, my... I believe my major contribution to that uh, that book um, was a chapter that set out how problem posing might, and I certainly believe should be, um, become an important component of all mathematics lessons at whatever level. Hmm. Ken, I want to turn over to you. You've done some research on algebra education and connections between semiotics and language and algebra and various things. So I was wondering when you became interested in those topics and and what were some of the key ideas that came from your research in that area? Well, I taught in schools for a long time before I became a mathematics educator in a university. And all the time while I was teaching, I noticed that uh, many school students had great difficulty with what seemed to be simple algebra. Uh, And so I began to work on why that was the case. Why was it the case that so many secondary students, for example, stated that 3a plus 2b was equal to 5ab? All teachers of algebra, uh, all experienced teachers know that that is the case. Why does it happen? How could we improve the situation without encouraging them to adopt 
wrote methods. Was it okay for a teacher to use language like you can add and subtract like terms, but you can't add and subtract unlike terms? To me, that sort of language is part of the problem with school algebra. Then when around 1970, I began to work with Zoltan Deans, I came to realize that the term algebra could involve much more than combining X's and Y's, according to rules provided by external authorities. Deans had devised brilliant teaching strategies for engaging students in fascinating activities which helped students to learn and appreciate the importance of structural properties with respect to numbers and other areas of life. When I introduced these activities to children, I found all of a sudden uh, that the children learned to talk about closure, associativity, commutivity, identity elements, inverses, distributive properties, isomorphisms, and so on. It sounds impossible, but they did, and not only very bright children, all children, once they'd got involved in the activity. They seemed to see, begin to see algebra as something much bigger than merely learning to combine the X's and Y's and to draw linear graphs. I also began to appreciate the power of the concept of a function and how this could enrich school children's ideas about relationships. During the 1980s and 1990s, I was challenged by the data generated by the famous students and professors problem. Write an equation using S and P to represent the following. There are six times as many students as professors at this university. Mm -hmm. Use S for the number of students, P for the number of professors. Professors, I was similarly challenged by the data associated with the task. The number Y is eight times the number Z. Write this information in mathematical symbols. You know, how, how could anyone get that wrong? The number Y is eight times the number Z. And what we found that students who had studied algebra for uh, two years or so got it wrong. That sort of that question was asked in a number of different countries where I worked and we found the same sort of data. One third of, of, of students who'd studied algebra for two years got it wrong. And a lot of students got the students and professors problem wrong. It seemed remarkable to me that many students who'd been al studying algebra for years still gave uh, responses like 6s equals p for the students and professors task and 8y equals z for the other task. Then in 2015, I'm now at Illinois State University, when I was supervising Sinan Canbeer, who's a doctoral student at the time, which involved seventh and eighth graders, it became clear in Sinan's work that fundamentally the problem was to do with language. It was a semi-off problem. Students were confused by the spoken and written languages of algebra. They did not learn to cope with the symbols, the signifiers and the signifiers of mathematics. We as teachers, it's too easy. It's easy to assume they do because we do. And the student, the interesting thing is the students think they do. In sequence problems, they couldn't cope very well with symbols like TN and TN, T subscript N and T subscript N plus one, or with the convention signified by uh, three dots when you have a sequence. We, don't, we know what the three dots mean, what's the next term, but the students didn't. When we interviewed them, Student after student who'd been studying algebra didn't know what the three dots meant. Teachers thought that the students could do it and knew it, and even many students thought they could, but they could, could not. So I asked the question, what must we as mathematics educators do to improve the situation? Sinan Kandir 
was able to provide answers to part of that question for the seventh and eighth grade students and their teachers in his doctoral research. But what additional research is needed? He was studying functions and he was studying sequences and he was studying structures, but that's only a small part of the whole of algebra. Uh, and so uh, what needs to be done? That question points to an unfinished and extremely important agenda, one with curriculum teaching and learning components. Hmm. So where's your thinking now? I know you're you're retiring, but I'm sure some of this is still on your mind. What would you say is your kind of current thoughts or the ideas from your work that's still hanging with you? Well, I've been teaching a uh, an algebra course for uh, attending middle school teachers, uh, and uh, in that I involve the students fully in in the activities, the dean's type activities, the structures, and and they uh, get to understand the idea of functions through an activity uh, uh, approach in which they, they they basically work together in small groups and report to the whole class and acquire um, um, both the receptive and expressive language of algebra. And both of those are required. Uh, if you do, if they have just a receptive where they read a textbook or the teacher talks and then they do exercise, they will not learn algebra, or most will not learn algebra properly. But if they engage in, in, in talking to each other, talking to the whole class, then they do learn. And so that's where I think we should be going. And we have, uh, Nerida and, and Sinan and, and I have uh, reported on that and have worked, published on it. And I think that has to be the direction to, to get the students to expand their modes of communication in school mathematics, where they talk, they talk to each other, they uh, report. Uh, they reflect, uh, they solve problems and so on, and they create problems, they pose problems. Uh, that's what we've been doing and, and I just hope it goes ahead. Now that I've retired, we'll be doing mm -hmm. other work. I wish I could continue with that work, but uh, <laughs> life moves on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I fully endorse the uh, discourse and communication aspect of student learning. Uh, and one last thing while I have you here. If there's a teacher listening who really um, has used the like terms and unlike terms for a long time, I just wanted to follow up on what would your rationale be to that teacher uh, kind of warning against overly relying on, on like terms as phrasing? Well, like terms is just a, a way of trying to prepare students so they can get the right answers at the back of the book to, to uh, elementary algebra manipulation tasks. Uh, and it doesn't really, you know, 3A plus 2A is 5A. Uh, why? The, oh, the standard thing is because A is a like term. But A and A squared are sort of like terms, but they're not allowed to be when you use the, the language of schools. And so it gets confusing. But we as teachers think it's clarified. And for some students it does. But it's not a way in which they'll get to understand that, you know, 3A and 2A have a common factor A. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, you buy the distributive property, 3 plus 2A, which is 5A. Now, you don't want to hammer that all the time, and you don't want them to say it's a distributive property, but they really should see that they're applying the distributive property here. As time goes on, they become aware that, that's you know, there are these properties which are important and which basically control school algebra. I don't think that happens at present. And, and to be honest with you, Sam, I'm not sure that teachers across the nation in the United States are sufficiently aware of structural properties of 
school algebra to be able to lead students into that. That is something which needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you actually, you know, even with A squared and A, if you wanted to factor out an A, you could factor out an A and still have these other, you know, terms left to be combined. So if, if a student is just thinking, I'm not allowed to do anything with A squared and A because they're different, yeah. then you're kind of limiting them because actually you can factor out an A and you can work with what's left over. You know, there are ways you can still try to realize the relationship between A squared and A. So, of but, course, Sam, but they are unlike, aren't they? <laughs> Sorry. All right, I want to move on into one of your uh, main areas of work. Uh, I'm speaking with Nerida Ellerton and Ken Clements from Illinois State University. You've done a lot of work on the history of school mathematics. And so I was wondering if you could give us a historical overview of your work on the history of school math. So to start with, perhaps in 1988, um, the Australian Journal of Education published our article, Reshaping School Mathematics in Australia, 1788 to 1988, because it was the 200th anniversary. And that represented the formal beginning of Ken's and my partnership in researching and writing about the history of school mathematics. But each of us has had a strong interest in that history before we even began to work together on it. We had both been avid collectors of old mathematics textbooks quite independently and manuscripts and artifacts. At the outset, we decided that good research in mathematics education needed to be placed in a historical framework In other words, it wasn't enough to refer to articles that were just published within the last five years. We wanted to see the roots of where some of the ideas came from to establish the pathway, if you like, of how um, current thinking was and what should be retained and what could be modified. That was an important... um, it, It took on an importance of any theoretical framework. So we believe it's much more important to have a historical framework than a theoretical framework because that should emerge from the data. In our own historical research, we have adopted a a view of mathematics curriculum as involving three different aspects, intended, implemented and attained because they're not usually the same. And that has helped frame what we've done. We also developed and have applied what we call a lag time theoretical framework, which takes account of the pathway from the discovery of some aspects of mathematics by mathematicians to the time that it actually enters school mathematics curricula. And we looked at reasons why those times can vary, and sometimes they're very long. And these depend on social, psychological, political and mathematical factors, and we've tried to take some of those into account. Our time together in the the math department at Illinois State University between 2005 and 2018 saw us concentrate on researching and writing the history of school mathematics in colonial North America and in the United States of America. It's interesting that most uh, areas of serious scholarly study are interested in their history. Mathematicians are very interested in the history of mathematics. But strangely, people interested in mathematics education only want to know about the history of mathematics education over the past 30 or 40 years, perhaps from the new math. Hmm. We set a much broader objective. And there's a bit of resistance. They say, what's the point of looking at something which happened in the 19th century? 
we became serious collectors of American school textbooks and of ciphering books, that's hand, handwritten manuscripts from the uh, 17th and 18th and early 19th century. Uh, after a while, we extended our collection to include books and manuscripts from other nations, and now our collection of ciphering books is easily the largest in the world. We slowly came to realise that a ciphering tradition controlled school mathematics in Europe and America, and you can't really understand the present situation until you know about what was came out of the ciphering tradition. Our extensive collection of manuscripts and our research in archives in America, Europe and Australia enabled us to support our hypothesis that for about four centuries the ciphering tradition, as I said, controlled school mathematics, not only in, in over here in America, but in many parts of the world. In fact, we began to argue that probably in all parts of the world. Uh, we have written much to support that conclusion. Uh, one or two educational historians have tended to resist our strong conclusion, but for us their arguments are not supported by available evidence, which is to be found by examining manuscripts in archives. Historical research has involved us in framing questions, that's problem posing, seeking data from a, uh, appropriate primary sources, responding to data by framing hypotheses which relate to the research questions, or if necessary, abandoning them or modifying the questions, checking whether the hypotheses we form are consistent, uh, consistent with further data, and answering the research questions. As an example, in our research into the ciphering tradition, data from ciphering books suggested two important genres. Now, our awareness of these genres only came after we had studied quite a few ciphering books. Uh, and once we became aware of these genres, all of a sudden, we couldn't look at ciphering books without taking the idea into it. In other words, it, it started to direct our thinking once we had formulated the, the we, we decided these genres existed. Now, there was an what we call an IRCE genre, I-R-C-E-E, -E, uh, by which handwritten sections for each topic in a ciphering book would begin with an introduction, move on to the statement of rules in cases R and C, uh, and often model examples, work examples, and conclude with students solving exercises. We recognise that this aspect of the ciphering tradition was retained after the tradition was dropped, which was around 1860 in the United States. Uh, so here we have a, a tradition which has been carried forward, it's still obviously the case in many, many classrooms, but it came from history, and it's, it's fixed in stone because it's so old and hard to change. Uh, we call the other genre, the second genre, the PCA, statement of a problem, that's P, listing relevant calculations, that's C, uh, without explanation, and succinctly stating the answer to the original question, PCA. So you'd see the question written out, you see a whole lot of massive calculations, and then you'd see ANS, answer with some number. The, there were no explanations for, the, for what was written out. This aspect of the ciphering tradition has been retained and as you seen in most mathematics classrooms still today. It dominates what goes on in school. In university methods courses, we try to get them to, to explain what they're doing and talk about it, but when they write it out in their textbook, this PCA genre lives on. Uh, once we had noticed and defined these genres, we found that they were dominantly present 
most of the cycling books in our collection, and indeed, they still are present in books written and prepared by students today. We have found it important to develop uh, historical frameworks for issues such as what is constructivism? When did it enter US school mathematics? And who was responsible for its introduction and its growing influence? Or, for example, what were mathematics classroom discourse patterns like in the 19th century? Uh, did the introduction of whole class teaching in the 19th century improve the, the, the learning of mathematics? Often our historical research has led us to make potentially controversial claims. For example, here's one of the claims we've made. Two centuries ago, American teachers did not stand at the front of the room and teach. And most students, even those studying mathematics, did not own a mathematics textbook. Written examinations of any kind were not used. Most teachers of any branch of mathematics did not have formal qualifications in mathematics. Once we made these points to a large audience, uh, and a famous mathematician who was present asked, well, what did the teachers do? Our answer is plenty, um, but this is not the time or place to elaborate <laughs> You might notice, though, that the examples we have just given have not been directly discussed in terms of 20th and 21st century data. We, we would love to say more about historical investigations into the progressive era between 1915 and 1950, mastery learning between 1920 and 2000, the new math between 1955 and 1970, the problem-solving movement in the 1980s, the standards era, 1989 to 2009, the math war, 1980. 2010 and the Common Core 2009 to the present, but that is not possible here. <laughs> yeah, and you've left quite a bit for people who are interested in these topics to go and explore, so I encourage listeners to do so. Right now, I just want to get a little bit of your perspective because you have lived in many different countries and worked around the world, and then you have this historical perspective. So using that as your framework, what do you see as the key challenges, or maybe it's key opportunities? for school mathematics, like in, in a broad international sense, what are those key challenges right now? We see the present situation with respect to school mathematics still reeking of Eurocentrism and Americanism. For example, most references in PhD theses on mathematics education in the United States are to recent US studies. And in Europe, most references are to European research articles. But in Tim's and Peace's studies, and quite a few other studies, it seems that North America and Europe have much to learn about quality in school mathematics from Eastern Asia, and especially from nations with a Confucian heritage. But we would still wonder why, for example, all three major ICMI awards for excellence in mathematics education are named after European scholars, Klein, Freudenthal and Castellanova. So uh, there, there are a lot of questions there about the biases, if you like, um, of how school mathematics and mathematics education is seen. So please forgive us for saying that, but remember we are Australian, so we see we, we, our, our, our world is upside down, so we see some people from <laughs> a different perspective. Another major challenge is to sort out the achievement attitude dilemma. Why is it the case that Tim's studies have revealed that students in highest achieving nations, Japan, Singapore, Korea, 
Hong Kong, etc., have recorded the worst mean attitude studies on Tim's attitude scales. The correlation found in the 1995 Tim study was actually about negative 0.7. Amazingly, this has hardly ever been discussed in the literature. We get, we get caught up in all the superior ways which we find uh, teaching and introduction of problem solving in, in Asian countries, but the fact is the students learn to hate mathematics, or many students, most students do, if we believe the data. So why, what, what's going on there? Hmm. I think we need to sort it out. What does equity mean with respect to school mathematics? What does it mean? What's equity? Nerid and I work a lot in Southside Chicago schools. And this question is uh, confronting it. I mean, if you try to teach uh, children who are not ready at this stage because of background factors within the school and so on, material which they're not ready to learn, then is that equity? It's hard to say it, but the question is important. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, like the background factors that you're referring to is also their prior mathematics instruction. Like if, if their prior mathematics instruction has not set them up well for success in ninth grade or in 10th grade, that is also not really fair to then try to teach certain things that way. So it's, it's kind of part of the problem is maybe our own structure of how we're teaching mathematics all the way along. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And uh, we worked a lot with Australian Aborigines in Australia and, and uh, you know, these kids out in the outback of Australia. Uh, the fact is uh, that many of them uh, were well below what they were being required to learn. I mean, they're 14 years old and 10% of them could tell the time on a watch. What's the point of uh, trying to teach them quadratic equations if they can't, if they have no idea what, what it's all about? Now, I know that brings up all sorts of controversial issues, but I think we need to face the realities of the situation and work out. I love mathematics and I want all my students to love mathematics. How are we going to achieve that? And that, so they get to know the mathematics they need to know. Uh, should school mathematics curricula be the same across different nations? Should school mathematics curricula be the same within a given nation? To me, there's too much uh, preaching going on and not enough actual research and reality being put into the research. But anyway, that's... <laughs> Why do families in, in Confucian nations place, you know, Japan, Hong Kong, parts of mainland China and so on, uh, Singapore, place great value on the mathematics. Uh, this is to us the, the key to why these nations are doing well on these Tim's tests and so on, and not, and not the classroom interaction patterns, I'm sorry to say that. It's, it's the value which families, they all go, they spend massive amounts of time every day in out-of-school tuition because the families absolutely value mathematics and they want their children to do well in it. So why did they do that? And is it a good thing? And do we really want our children to be in, in the US to be like that? Do children in all nations and in different cultures within the same nation benefit equally from studying school mathematics other than, of course, becoming qualified to go on to study more mathematics, which might help them get well-paid employment? Just two more questions. Is technology really helping more children to learn more mathematics well. Ever since I can remember, technology was going to solve the math problem. 
uh, calculators, computers for that, radio, television, and, and graphing calculators and so on, uh, and now geogebra and, and, uh, and all those sorts of things. Uh, we're always told this is, this, is, this is it, but it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. Uh, I think we need to recognise that uh, somehow technology seduces us in the thinking it's going to solve problems which maybe it won't solve. Sometimes it makes it worse. The opportunities which we have uh, will, depend, will depend on our efforts to answer questions such as those above in an intellectually honest way. But what does that mean? With that, I close. <laughs> <That's hard. laughs> All right, lots to think about. Um, real briefly here, I want to change gears uh, about some of the nuts and bolts of the mathematics education research community. So, um, Nerida, you had experience um, editing a journal uh, over on the Australian side, and then you were also associate editor on the JRME side here. Uh, I was just wondering, what are some of the rewarding experiences that you had from being inside you know, the journal process? Well, with MERGE, which was the Mathematics Education Research Journal um, in Australia, I was editor between 93 and 1997. I guess the most rewarding aspect was to be able to help the Mathematics Education Research Group of Australasia, uh, MERGA, to establish a recognised and attractive scholarly journal. I was the second only, uh, you know, the second editor the journal has continued, but I was able to establish the the presentation format, the um, formatting and referencing style used throughout, and trying to get it known internationally. And it's followed in much the same pattern as the way I established it. Um, as I said, I was the second ever editor of Merge. It was an interesting process to try to get it to to the world stage, if you like. It was not easy because in those days, I mean, it's not that long ago, but unlike NCTM, Merga couldn't afford to provide funds for any time release, any secretarial support, or the extra expenses associated with attracting, reviewing, and publishing the high-quality articles that we aimed for. So it was done on a shoestring. And now it does receive a little bit more funding, those supporting it, and it's now published by Springer. So uh, it, it, was, it was good to be part of those early days, but it was a challenge. And with JRME, um, when I was associate editor 2011 to 2016, because we always bridge where the editorial team goes for four years, but there's a, a bridging period at both ends um, with handovers. And the greatest benefit to me, I think, was to be able to work with a very professional team that was um, involved, the editor, two associate editors, assistant editors, and an on-site secretary. And also with the NCTM JRME Advisory Board. Um, so that was a, a, an interesting and informative experience. But encouraging and mentoring new researchers as they aspired to write high-quality articles and as they responded to reviewers' comments was also a very rewarding part to see that growth and then to see their articles come out in print. Mm -hmm. And Ken, on your side, I noticed um, that you were involved in the whole series of international handbooks, multiple of them. I was wondering how that was for you and what was rewarding about being involved in those handbooks. 
Well, the most important reward for me was to be able to work closely with Alan Bishop, Christine Keitel, Jeremy Kilpatrick, Colette Laborde, Fred, Fred Lung. They were, uh, they were also editors with me. Not often one has the privilege to work with a group of people who were all recognised as transformative leaders on the international mathematics education stage. In particular, it was a real honour for me to be the chief editor for the, for the third handbook, which came out in 2013. And for each of the handbooks, the editors met uh, to plan each handbook. Now, it was not an easy thing to arrange meetings, <laughs> but we met before uh, the event to plan what was going to happen with the handbook. And it was fascinating to participate in the process of deciding the main themes for a handbook and who should be invited to be the authors for individual chapters. The selection of authors was not always something upon which the editors agreed, you can imagine, but once agreement was reached, there was no turning back. The editors worked together harmoniously. One of the policies agreed upon for the first handbook, and I have to say it was my suggestion, was that as far as possible, two or three authors should be invited to write any particular chapter. And that also, as far as possible, no two authors for a chapter should be from the same country. Another policy decision, which I also pushed, was that as far as possible, again, the authors for a chapter should not be known to hold essentially the same ideas about the major issues for that chapter. Actually, we sought people who had conflicting ideas to co-author co chapters. As it turned out, these policy decisions sometimes proved to be impossible to implement for certain chapters, but in most cases they were implemented, and in my opinion, they were beneficial. With the third handbook, I was successful in persuading the editorial team that each of the four sections should be structured on the basis of past, present and future aspects. The first chapter in a section provided historical perspectives. How did we get to where we are now? The middle chapters in a section analyse uh, present day issues and themes. Where are we now and what recent events have been especially significant? And the final chapter in a section referred to policy matters. Where are we going and what should we do? In my introduction to the third handbook, I argue that mathematics education research has a vitally important role to play in improving mathematics curricula and the teaching and learning of mathematics. As a result of the expertise, wisdom and internationalism of both authors and section editors, the third handbook has provided an invaluable state-of-the-art compendium of the most recent and promising events in the field. There were 84 authors from 26 nations who contributed to that handbook. Making, making it a truly international output, and perhaps more so than any other summary of mathematics education research ever published. Well, thank you to both of you for your service uh, to the field in those areas and also your work. Um, to close the interview here, I just want to congratulate you on your retirement, and I'm sure you're looking forward to some things. You're headed back to Australia. So what are you looking forward to the most uh, upon getting back to Australia there down under? Well, thanks for those congratulations, Sam. Most of our children, grandchildren, and our two great children, grandchildren, live in Australia, so we'll be close to the family. But no rest for the wicked, they say. We've established uh, the Australian Education Heritage Museum, AEHM, as a not-for-profit uh, undertaking at our property in Toowoomba in Queensland, uh, which is located, the, the museum is located two hours west of Brisbane. 
We plan to have the museum operational on a day-by-day basis by about April 2020. The museum will have about 20 main themes. These will include mathematics education, language education, science education, history education and geography education. Other themes will be needlework, domestic science, measurement, sport and education, music education, Aboriginal education, colonialism in education, the influence of America on Australian education, the influence of the United Kingdom on Australian education and Asian education. Finally, we'll have uh, themes on textbooks and the history of education. Aside from tradition, one-room schools, distance education, early childhood education and technology and education. And believe it or not, we've collected lots of uh, textbooks and references and newspapers and artefacts relating to each of those themes. So for, for many years, as Ken was saying, we have been collecting artefacts, but particularly books and newspapers, manuscripts um, for the museum. Uh, and we hope to be able to involve local schools and people from the community to work and work with us on the museum. And there's been a lot of local enthusiasm about that. One of the museum's four buildings will be a library that has 80,000 volumes in it. Uh, another building is a, a large but one room 1889 school building, which for Australia is a relatively early one, which we hope to have uh, a classroom that children can come to and experience some of the um, experiences that children of that era would have enjoyed. So those listening to this podcast would be most welcome to come and visit us at the museum. There will be a website. It's not up yet because we're not there, but we will be reopening the museum then. Um, in 2020. And we're excited by the opportunity that our museum and its resources will provide for students, for teachers, researchers, and for the community at large. And we look forward to seeing you there as well. Yes, you listening to this, you've got to come to see the AHM <laughs> in Toowoomba, Australia. Wonderful. Well, that sounds very great. Um, thank you so much for sharing about that and for looking back at your career with us. Thanks, Sam. Thanks.